I felt normal at the barn, like I wasn't the girl who had been sexually assaulted. I wasn't judged there. I felt understood in a sense of purpose, actually, something other than my trauma. And in a world where I felt super lost, I was at home in the barn. Hi, I'm Rebecca Britt, and this is the Stable Moments Podcast the show where we discuss all things related to the foster care system and early childhood trauma. From foster parents, trauma experts, former foster kids, and beyond, we'll take a deep dive into the complexities of the foster care crisis in an effort to better understand how to fix it. Hey, welcome to our second episode of the Stable Moments podcast. I don't think it would be right to jump right into our main content and guests without putting some context around who I am, what prompted stable moments, and how I came to be where I am today. So today's episode will be about the story, my story, uh, and how I got here. So I always loved horses from the time I was three years old. My parents tell me that I was asking to have lessons and we used to pass this this farm in Vermont where I grew up and I would always ask and point out the horses and ask for lessons Uh, and, and I didn't get lessons right away but at one point when I was nine years old I decided to just get off the school bus at the horse farm and it was at that point after my parents tried to figure out and found out where I was and what I had done that they did decide to to get me riding lessons. And horses really became a focal point for me. Although I had a stable family life and I didn't endure any adverse childhood events in the core years of my development, I did experience sexual trauma at 12 and then again at 13. And this sent me down a path of destruction. After the first event, my parents saw how depressed I was, and, and they bought me a horse, and thank God they did. The The barn was absolutely my safe place. I felt normal at the barn, like I wasn't the girl who had been sexually assaulted. I wasn't judged there. I felt understood in a sense of purpose, actually, something other than my trauma. And in a world where I felt super lost... I was at home in the barn, and it wasn't necessarily the people at the barn. It was just the environment and the fact that somehow my horse had this amazing ability to take on all my turmoil effortlessly, and I just felt safe there. So this connection that I had with my horse inspired me to become a horse trainer. That's what I wanted to do. But I didn't know of any lessons on how to become a horse trainer. I only knew that there were riding lessons. And I wanted to know not how to be a coach of people, but I wanted to know how do you actually take like a foal or a baby horse or a horse that doesn't know how to be ridden and how do you train them? So this kind of led me down a path to start learning natural horsemanship. And I had looked it up online and bought some books And this helped me learn how to connect with the horse using herd psychology to get the desired results. So rather than like the typical, we call breaking of the horse, you would actually use how they respond to each other in the herd to train them. 
I learned that horses are prey animals. So they are actually programmed to flee when there's a predator. They do not need to fight for their food. So they're hypervigilant and they are always on alert and they actually run. So as a prey animal, their flight mentality would render any efforts to dominate them ineffective. Whereas dominance may be successful in training a dog or other predators, prey animals do much better with a mutual understanding and trust. Working together, you can accomplish desired results without friction or resistance. So as I, I learned these principles, I wanted a challenge and I wanted to work with horses who hadn't particularly been trained. So naturally I chose a, a large challenge, which is uh, thoroughbreds off the racetrack. So I would, in my teens, 16, 17, go grab thoroughbreds off the racetrack and, and come home and try to use natural horsemanship techniques on them. And those horses taught me so much. I mean, I got beat up, bruised, taken for a ride, but I learned so much. And this was really my first real introduction to how you can use connection to partner with and achieve results rather than being punitive or trying to push your agenda on someone or something. Uh, this really was my, my first taste of what connection can do. So this relationship that I created with these horses through my high school years was, was really impactful on me and, and really allowed me to survive, honestly, through my high school years. And I ended up going to college to become a social worker. And it's not uncommon for people with trauma histories to go into a helping field because they want to be the support for somebody that they feel that they didn't get or that they needed so badly. And this was absolutely the case for me. When I graduated, uh, it was the middle of a recession and I tried to get a job and was having a very hard time. So I started to go farther and farther out of my small community and was looking, you know, an hour away from the house. And the only job that was hiring that I got an interview for was a post adoption case manager. And it was about an hour away from my house. And I went and I interviewed and the pay was I think 1278 an hour for the social work position and I got the job. So I started working as a post adoption case manager. I didn't really know what that meant, but I soon found out that that meant that my job was to basically promote permanence within families who have adopted out of state's custody. And because there really wasn't support for the parents who had adopted out of state custody after they adopted, usually they would be fresh in their adoption with no support and eventually get to a point where they felt so isolated and so on their own that they would call me and they would say, I'm ready to give this kid back. Like we're done. And my job was then to go in and teach them therapeutic parenting techniques and teach them about trauma and hope make it so that they keep this child in their home. Permanence was the goal. So in this job, I learned everything about trauma. And what was crazy to me was that everything I was learning in how to therapeutically intervene with these kids were the principles I learned in natural horsemanship. 
in natural horsemanship, one of the first things you learn is that it's all about the relationship, that there is no goal other than building trust and relationship with your horse. Whereas typically somebody would say, do what it takes to get a horse over a jump or to get the desired result, whatever you're trying to get your horse to do. And you might use a whip or a lot of pressure or fear-based tactics, but in natural horsemanship, the relationship is the goal. So at the end of the day, even if you didn't accomplish anything that you set out to do, but if your horse trusts you more and you've built relationship with him, then you have done the work you're supposed to do and you've achieved your goal, which is the exact same for kids living with trauma. Kids living with trauma inherently think that they are worthless. So you have to have the relationship be your goal. If you become punitive with them, then that's going to trigger their shame response and validate their feelings of worthlessness. So other correlations that I saw between natural horsemanship and intervening with children who had endured trauma were being non-punitive, being relationship-based, understanding that their life or death mentality is true and honest and kind of taking what they say they can't do at face value. If you're a horse person, you know that you could cross through the same puddle or pass the same barn every single day. And then one day a horse could just choose that that puddle is going to kill me or I'm afraid of that side barn. And with horses and using natural horsemanship, you actually honor that and you understand that that is tough for them that day. And you figure out a way to work with that and you take as much time as you need to make sure that that horse feels understood and safe. And this is exactly what we do with children who have endured early childhood trauma. I would have parents come to me often and say, listen, she was potty trained or she had already achieved this milestone and now she is regressing and it's her choice. She's regressed and she's just choosing not to do it. But it's the same thing with kids with trauma. We understand that for that day, this is tough with them and we take it for face value. We don't take it as a manipulation and we keep the relationship our goal. Guys, the correlations were so obvious to me that I started using analogies all the time. I would go into parents' homes and I would say, listen, it's just like with a horse. You can beat them over the jump, but at the end of the day, you're not going to have trust with them. Or you can tell them that the puddle isn't going to hurt them, but to them, this is a life or death situation and they truly believe they're going to die. And the parents would look at me dumbfounded, like, why does this girl always compare my child to a horse? So I started to realize that maybe I needed to chill out with the horse analogies, but I did start gaining this desire to match children up with horses somehow. I just wasn't sure how that would be possible. Although I was a good social worker, trauma from my past still haunted me. Away from work, I was engaging in harmful behaviors and unhealthy personal relationships. To be honest, I needed help. I had sought help in many forms, but I didn't even know what I needed. I didn't know how to break unhealthy coping mechanisms. And to say the least, my destructive patterns were winning the race against my healing for sure. So I chose to move to Georgia. I just needed a change of scenery and my dad had moved there after my parents had gotten divorced. So I figured that would be a good place to kind of start over. Now, I can't tell you the rest of this story without attributing every bit of this program's success to God. 
Now, I don't commit myself to any specific religion, and of course, everyone is welcome here, but whatever you believe in, I'm sure you can relate to a power higher than yourself. And the way Stable Moments story unraveled was 100% a divine intervention. When I moved to Georgia, I was at my lowest. I was close to hopeless, depressed, lost, ashamed even. I learned that God didn't need me to be perfect or even know what my next step was. He just needed me to commit to taking the next step. Just wake up and show up. And through all of this, that's all I did. God did the rest. Even the horrible times, I firmly believe, were just a push toward my divine purpose. You see, sometimes God has to make things so difficult, so unacceptable, that you'll change. I would have never moved to Georgia if my life wasn't in shambles. And as you'll see, there were many more pitfalls, obstacles, and desperate situations. But each one pushed me to a change. They forced me to opt into something bigger, a bigger opportunity. Had everything been easy, I'd still be a social worker in Vermont right now. Okay, so I moved to Georgia. I have no clue what I'm going to do. I start looking for a job. My dad tells me that he saw this Facebook ad for a volunteer position at a local horse rescue matching up foster kids with horses. My mind was blown. Like, how does that ad even exist? But I reached out to the person that wrote the ad and I ended up meeting this person, Kathy Lee, who was a godsend and I later moved in with her. But... Uh, she has adopted children and she actually wanted to start this program that had been around this farm for a while, but this time she wanted it specifically to serve foster and adopted children. And so I told her my background, I told her how excited I was and all the ideas I had for a program like this. And from that point on, we were off and running. I was an experienced social worker and I felt like the next step was just start meeting with kids. Let's see what the response is going to be and let's see what their needs are. So I started just by advertising the program on Facebook. Kathy happened to be connected in the area to foster and adoptive parents, and I simply offered time for their children at the farm, hanging out with horses. Of course, it was going to be a free service, so that meant there was no lack in participants. I was meeting with each child for one hour each, and they were really enjoying their time. But I had a full-time job, and soon I was serving 12 children on my own. That's 12 hours on top of a full-time job, and we had a wait list. This is kind of what sparked the idea for me of community mentors. If I could get volunteers to hang out with the kids at the barn, then I could serve a bunch more kids. Of course, there would need to be some training on trauma-informed approaches and how to handle horses. But I encourage the volunteers to just get curious with the kids, and if they didn't know something, to ask another volunteer. This happened to be a pretty active and busy horse rescue. Mind you, the volunteers weren't given much more training than that, and I was not able to even be on site during their sessions with the kids. I know, I know, it sounds absolutely crazy to me now, too. As the program demanded more and more of my time, I felt I needed to make some big changes. My work, the farm, and my dad's house that I was staying at were all an hour from each other in a big triangle. The commute to each was getting too much. I moved in with Kathy and her large family, and that cut out one of the hour-long commutes. Under Kathy's roof, we had a lot of time to plan and discuss and really dream of what this program could be. 
Kathy and her husband invited some friends to become members of a board of director to found a nonprofit to develop the program into its own entity. And that's how Stable Moments was born. So this was super exciting for me and I wanted to shout from the rooftops, I'm starting my own nonprofit. It sounded like a dream come true. But there was tension between the horse rescue and myself upon news of me wanting to start my own nonprofit. I hadn't been clear about wanting to form my own nonprofit because I didn't know that I did want to do that. I now understand how developing a program somewhere and then wanting to branch off on your own and essentially move the program somewhere else can cause angst. Boy, back then I had no idea the drama starting this program would cause. Starting Stable Moments and moving to our own property was followed by legal documents, negative letters about my character to my new landlord, disparaging blog posts, and a long social media attack. My thought was, I'm just trying to help kids. But although I'm sad it had to go that ugly, I am also happy that God made it clear where and when I needed to cut ties or this could have been much more ugly. So I moved to a new property and through generous donations, mainly made by the board of directors and my family, I was able to quit my job. The farm we rented came with an apartment, so that was where I would live. I had no projected income, but there would be a roof over my head for the time being and I guess I just took a crazy leap of faith. At this point, I was 27 and I felt like the worst that could happen was this wouldn't work out and I'd have to find another job. I had a degree. I wasn't nervous about that. So the program grew at the new location and I loved being able to dedicate my full time to stable moments. The kids loved it, but as you can imagine, the volunteers were a little lost. They would show up, greet their kid, grab a horse, groom, walk the horse around, but now what? What were they supposed to be doing? What was their big goal? Why are they doing this again? So I realized pretty quickly that I needed to provide them some structure. I had to develop rules like no food, no gifts, no contact outside of sessions, and no transporting the children. All of these rules pretty much came from some were best practices that I learned as being a mental health provider, but others came from living in the program and realizing we needed these rules. I once watched a child ask a mentor, can you make it to my birthday party next week? And I thought, oh goodness, I need to make a rule. And this is a big deal because if a kid asks during a session, hey, can you come to my birthday party next week? And the mentor says, sure, that sounds like fun. And then the mentor is unable to show up, that can cause more trauma, or maybe they come. And then the kid says, oh, can you come to dinner next week? And then they feel obligated to go to dinner. And if they can't go to dinner, then the kid feels like, oh, you wanted to go to my birthday party, but now you don't wanna to go to dinner. Do you not like me anymore? And it can really just cause some feelings that can get out of control and cause harm when we didn't mean to. Similarly with our no food rule, we had a mentor one time show up for a kid's birthday with 12 cupcakes and she turned around within three minutes and said, holy smokes, he was really hungry. He ate all 12 of those. And I realized, oh no, we really need a no food rule because a lot of these kids have trauma associated with not getting the nutrition that they needed. So this can cause them to lack self-control when food is available. So. 
we needed these rules. And I learned that kind of by just going along with the program and realizing where we needed to make adjustments. I developed plans of care so that mentors could have a snapshot of the child, their personality, challenges, and what life skills they would be working on. And each life skill had a color associated with it so that I could create activities that were also color-coded and coordinated with the color-coded life skills on the plans of care. That way, mentors could grab activities that match the child's plan of care, and they would be working on unique life skill goals without having to put any more thought into it than that. This gave mentors the direction and structure they were looking for and made my life a lot easier. Trust me, when you are the person everyone's looking at to provide structure, clear-cut policies and systems are a must. With this structure, we started to understand our roles a bit better, and the program really became a well-oiled machine. Mentors showed up every single week, and their kids loved meeting with them. Some of them barely even knew who I was. They just jumped out of the car and went to greet their mentor and horse, and they were off. And this was actually a clear indicator of success for me. But it still wasn't all rainbows. Relying on donors to pay the rent and keep the lights on at our facility was tough. I would say a prayer every time I opened the mailbox, hoping that there would be enough money to cover the horse feed or our rent. In the beginning, we didn't charge anyone program fees, something I would never recommend now. I think a lot of nonprofits learn this the hard way, most nonprofits are started by bleeding hearts with little business sense. I went to the school of hard knocks to learn that sustainability and revenue-focused practices is what would ensure my ability to serve the population I cared so much about. The money thing is just something nonprofit directors need to get over. A nonprofit is 100% a business, and having to shoestring the rent leaves you racked with anxiety and fear of shutting down. Also, no sponsor wants to give to a charitable cause that has no sustainable income. Okay, I'm off my soapbox. I digress. You must have revenue to cover your bare minimum operating costs. People would see the farm in the video someone had made for us that was free and assume that we didn't need anything. We made the mistake of looking too buttoned up in effort to look like an official organization. Thankfully, I did have the support of my board of directors who made sure I had what I needed. They brought me food, and I even remember calling one of them one time to ask if they could pick me up tampons. Finally, a volunteer even set me up at the local food bank, so I was able to get some food without having to ask. There's something so humbling about not being able to pay for bare necessities. When our lease was up on the property, a volunteer and close friend at the time amazingly offered to buy a farm and rent us the barn and pastures. It was what I thought would be our dream situation. And it was. After a couple months of negotiations, my friend had bought this farm and we were moving in. Again, with a little apartment above the barn, I'd be right on property and able to dedicate all my time to the program. It was a great space perfect for our growing program, and we really made it our own. We grew in our sense of community and just had a great culture around the program. The program continued to be successful, and I felt I was really onto something with this very structured model I had created. In 2016, I submitted an abstract to the Professional Association of Therapeutic Horsemanship, better known as PATH International, and it was accepted. 
The intention of the talk was to tell other facilities about the model in hopes more foster and adopted children could be served. By the end of my hour session, several people were advising me not to give any more information away, but to develop the curriculum in a way that could be sold to therapeutic equine facilities. I left feeling pretty darn validated. There were so many days that my racing thoughts ate me alive as I mucked stalls and scrubbed water troughs. My student loans weren't being paid, I had no clue if I would make the rent, and I wasn't sure how I would get enough gas to make it to the food bank. God's work was more than taxing, and having faith felt like a cruel joke sometimes. It just so happened that as the industry was showing a demand for a program model like mine, there was conflict brewing at the facility I was renting. As with most friend-business relationships, things started to get complicated. Roles weren't clear, expectations didn't match, and in the end, both parties wanted to terminate the agreement, and with that, unfortunately, the friendship. It was devastating. I was forced to shut down the program in the middle of a session year. We did our best to be mindful ending sessions, but I kept thinking to myself, how did I get here? How did I get myself and now these children that I felt completely responsible for into this mess? I shut down the program and feverishly looked for another facility. I was manic trying to make this work when I realized I was just going to have to let it go. Three years for nothing is what it felt like. So now what? Just get a job? Close the chapter? Talk about a crossroads. It was about this time that my boyfriend at the time, he's my husband now, asked if I would move to Florida with him. He was a police officer in Atlanta for a long time and also has a huge heart for children. But he felt like by the time he was locking them up, it was too late. He wanted to become a teacher instead, to hopefully be a good influence in role model before they were having run-ins with the law. The teaching certification he earned online while working as a police officer, he thought he could use in Georgia, but it turned out to only be valid in the state of Florida since it came from a Florida-based school. So we moved to Florida. I learned so many lessons the hard way and had created a program model that could easily be implemented anywhere. So I decided my role would be to help others, develop everything for other sites that they need to do this work without any of the headaches that I had to encounter to build it. I worked so hard on the book with a deadline to have it for sale by the next PATH International Conference where I was scheduled to speak again. I met my deadline and got only positive feedback on the book. Finally, I was getting some validation. I was on the right track. Even with the book though, I was still learning a lot. You see, my first intention was to just sell the book, telling every detail of exactly how to run a program. I truly tell all in the book and I hold nothing back. It's a nuts to bolts, how to start a mentorship program. But I soon realized people weren't social workers. They didn't know how to do intake assessments, write plans of care or train mentors. They also didn't have the funds in most cases to hire a social worker. So this is where the certification trainings came in. I always wanted this program to be non-clinical. Kids didn't need more therapy. In fact, most of these kids would refuse to come if you even brought up therapy. So I needed to teach program directors some best practices, key interventions, and the essentials to running the program. I also felt like I had to give them ongoing support, allow them to talk to each other, and give them training each month to stay sharp and truly understand our approach and principles, as well as other trauma 
informed resources. That's where the member portal and member calls came from. This was also a great way for me to get feedback. You need a sponsorship packet? I'll make it and release it to everyone. You need a slide deck to pitch the program? I'll make that too. Whatever you need, I can focus on so that the sites can just focus on running the program. So that's exactly where we are at today with several Stable Moments locations. We are also in the preliminary stages of developing our research study design so that we can get some data behind our model. Believe it or not, we have gotten some feedback that although the horses and farm are beneficial, that they may not be 100% necessary. It seems that the mentorship is the critical piece here. So I'm working on a non-equine version of this program to bring to all community organizations, churches, schools, who want to serve foster and adopted children. So that's it. That's the story. That's how Stable Moments got to where it is today. I hope you enjoyed hearing some of the backstory and our somewhat unstable beginnings. If you find this program interesting and you haven't already bought the book, I strongly recommend it. It's made up of case studies to illustrate the experience of children who are surviving with trauma and how we can better interact with them. Also, make sure to share this podcast with your community, friends, family, anyone you think it would be helpful for, and make sure to subscribe so that you can get new episodes as they come out. You can find Stable Moments on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and Pinterest. Thanks for spending your time here with me today. Join us on the next episode where we break down the basics of childhood trauma. See you there.